The problem is the pursuit of happiness. The idea that happiness is supposed to, is a suitable goal of life, or that happiness is supposed to be our kind of default position. Hello, and welcome back to How To Be Happy, a podcast where we explore all the ways that we can live a happier life. Each week, we're talking to happiness experts and celebrities and some ordinary people to see if they have the secret to getting more out of life. This week, we're looking at the idea of authenticity. How do you go about finding your true self? Is it in there somewhere? And can you ever be happy if you're faking it? We'll be joined soon by Hugh McKay, author of Inner Self, The Joy of Discovering Who We Really Are. But first, producer Nanny Young and I are going to talk about authenticity. Hello, Kate. How are you going? Hello. Are you authentic today? Is this your authentic, true self that I'm seeing? I think so. I've always been um, a bit of a weirdo, and that's uh, <laughs> I find it quite hard to. I find it harder to sort of hide that than to. You've than claimed to... your. You've claimed your space. Yeah. Yeah. You don't look like a weirdo. I mean, you sometimes wear some eclectic outfits. Yeah. But tell me, how did you begin to claim that authentic self? Do you think it's hard for people? I mean, in this sort of world, are we sort of always trying to impress people and be something that, you know, people want us to be? I think it's harder these days with social media. So I, I grew up, I'm 36. I had to think about how old I am. Mm. I'm 36. So I grew up sort of... Social media came in in the tail end of my mm. sort of late teens, but wasn't really around for my teenage mm. years. And I think nowadays people are really accustomed to comparing themselves mm. to what they're seeing online. And it's gotten worse because everybody's editing mm. everything. So you can't even really recognize what a real face looks like anymore. And you're sort of looking at that going, I'm never going to look like that. I'm never going to have those clothes. How can I aspire to this? Should be mm. should I be aspiring to this? It's it's pretty terrifying. Yeah, comparisons are killer. I think it's even when it's not around social media, although obviously that magnifies it like mm. crazy. But I think that comparison, you know, I read someone said compare yourself, compare yourself to the person you were yesterday, not to other people, but to the person you were yesterday. So I think you're able to sort of look and say, was I the person that I want to be? yesterday am I you know and I think that's where you you can't compare yourself to other people you can't be authentic if you can if you're constantly looking you know the times where I have compared myself to people which are innumerable Mm. um, especially when you're younger and you look and you think oh she's got this or he's got that or they're good at this or they're good at that and it's just it's such a crazy life to live because I think you know one of the gifts of, of of you know getting a bit older is that you realize that you have your own unique yeah. gifts yeah. you you actually can't be like someone else you have to be who you are and i think that um you know without that knowledge you're constantly feeling that you're not something you're not focusing on all the things that you are yeah yeah, I think you have to be a little bit selfish and, and put yourself first as well a little bit because I think if you're trying to please people and mm. you're trying to sort of get the approval of everyone around mm. you, it's never going to happen. No. 
You know, no, my stepdad used to say you can't please everybody all of the time, which is a really good sort of way to look into life is that, you know, if you run around trying to be a perfect person yeah. for everyone, then you're ultimately, you know, doomed to failure and certainly to being really stressed out and unhappy. RuPaul, the drag queen, says um, if they ain't paying your bills, pay them bitches no mind. <laughs> so that's one of my favourite sayings. I like that. Uh, let's think of another one. I think that... Um, it, I think it might be Deepak Chopra says, what other people think of me is just None not, of your business. Is not my business. Yeah. yeah, agreed. Which is great. So, okay, authenticity comes around to just got sticking the finger up at everyone and saying, I'm going to do what I want. <laughs> I'm going to do what I want. I think so. I think, you, I think you do have to sort of dig down and work on liking yourself as mm. well, though. So maybe walking around with your finger up is not no, the ideal not way to do it. Well, I do find that, and, you know, as I've mentioned before, I've got teenage girls and I think that, you know, they're such a, a sort of a great microcosm around sort of self-esteem and, and that sort of thing, you know, watching teenagers make that journey. But I do find it can be really hard for people to sort of actually pull out something about themselves that's good. It's like, why is it so hard for us to claim parts of us, ourself that are good you know, it's like we're waiting for, you know, a, an awards show of someone to sort of yeah. say, Nina, welcome. <laughs> Where's my award case? Yeah, it turns out that you're a really kind person. <laughs> and it's like, could you not have claimed that for yourself before yeah. sort of someone said it at your funeral? Absolutely. It is almost like we're waiting for someone to give us a eulogy. So I say give yourself a eulogy while you're alive. Think about. In fact, here's a here's a cute thing that is very teenage, but I did with some friends of mine recently around our birthdays. We have birthdays, and I asked everyone to send, which is a real teenage thing. I asked everyone to send some words that they would use to describe those people. You know, you used to do that in in class when yeah. you were yeah. actually about eight, and they'd say, "Say something nice about everyone in the class." Well, I did it because I thought it's really nice to have a little envelope full of words that other people use to describe you. You know, courageous or wise or funny, because I think that too often we don't claim those things about ourselves. Um, we're sort of yeah, as I said, waiting for waiting for death for someone to eulogise us. <laughs> Hopefully well. Okay. Eulogise yourself, people. Yeah. Get it done. Hugh McKay is a social researcher and best-selling author of 19 books. Whoa. 19 books, including The Good Life, The Art of Belonging, and his latest, The Inner Self, The Joy of Discovering Who We Really Are. Hugh is a bit of an expert in the field of happiness, although he was quick to let me know that he wasn't a fan of our podcast title. Hugh, um, you are a, you're, you're an author of, of, of many books. You're prolific. You've had a career in the media. You've had lots of academic achievements. But I guess what strikes me as most interesting about your career is that you, you've spoken to a lot of people over the years. And um, in doing so, I guess you've got a pretty good understanding about... Um, humans and all our complexities. You've written a great book, um, which I enjoyed immensely, The Inner Self, and that's what we're talking about today, among other things. And I guess I did want to talk about the elephant in the room. We might jump into it from there, because one of the things that you talk about, or, or one of the parts of your book that's, um, is that we have a lot of hiding places from our authentic self. And one of the hiding places, you say, is the search for happiness. So do you do you not believe that it's possible to find happiness, Hugh? Ah, 
I, I believe absolutely it's possible to find happiness. <clears throat> and we all love those moments when we are happy. Uh, the, the problem, I think, and this is hardly an original idea. I mean, this is what ancient wisdom has been telling us um, forever, really. The problem is the pursuit of happiness. The idea that happiness is supposed to, is a suitable goal of life, or that happiness is supposed to be our kind of default position. And I think there are a couple of really serious things wrong with this idea that we're all meant to be happy and that life should all be about seeking happiness. Um, the first thing that's wrong with it is that happiness is just one of a very broad spectrum of emotions that we experience if we're fully human. And those emotions exist to tell us how we're responding to what's going on around us. Um, and, no, and none of those emotions would make sense without the context of all the others. So to privilege one, to say, I'm going to go after happiness, if you were going to be strictly logical, that would lead you into saying, so therefore I've got to seek out lots of opportunities to be sad so I can get the full understanding of what happiness is because none of the emotions in, in, the, in the human palette of emotions makes any sense without the context of all the others. Happiness is a state we recognise by contrast with sadness. We recognise success by contrast with failure. Um, so that's, that's my first problem with it, that, that it's, it's there, uh, recognisable and lovely, enjoyable, only because we've got this very broad contrast. The second problem, Kate, uh, for me is that as our folklore tells us, we grow through pain. Uh, and what that's a reminder is that we have much more to learn about ourselves and about what it means to be human from the so-called dark experiences. I mean, we, we learn more from failure than from success. We learn more from episodes of sadness or loss or disappointment or frustration than we do from bright, shiny episodes of pleasure and happiness. I mean, you, you don't learn much about who you are or about the human condition or about the needs of other people who um, need you to be engaging with them. You don't, don't learn much about any of, the, of that from feeling happy, but you learn a lot about that sort of stuff from these moments of, we say darker, um, yeah, darker reflection or, or period. For, for example, as a society, we are going to be learning a great deal more from the experience of living through the COVID-19 pandemic than we are from just having a, a normal year with terrific economic growth and full employment and everyone's chirpy and uh, we can all indulge ourselves and say, isn't this wonderful? We're the happiest country on earth. Uh, I, I think we look back on, people look back on things like a relationship breakdown, 
or a serious illness or a retrenchment uh, or some other period in their lives that was absolutely no fun when they were going through it. And they typically look back on it and say, I wouldn't wish that on my worst enemy, but it was the making of me because I got my values straight. I decided what really matters to me. Uh, I got my priorities in the right order. Uh, in, in my research career, I spent a lot of time with older people. I spent time with people across the whole spectrum, but certainly with older people, representative of that generation who lived through the Great Depression. Now, most of them are dead now, but people who lived through the Great Depression, and it was a dreadful time. I mean, unemployment much worse than it is now. Uh, a lot of people doing it really tough. A lot of neighbourhoods having to band together to look after people who couldn't put food on their table, all that sort of stuff. The social security net, nothing like as generous as it is now. The thing that I heard repeatedly from that generation was, weren't we lucky to have such tough formative years? Because that really taught us what matters, really taught us the value of neighbours, uh, the, the importance of engaging with the neighbourhood, looking out for each other. We got our priorities straight and we never forgot those lessons. And they often referred to themselves as the lucky generation because they'd had, well, um, some, some of them, of course, had had two world wars, the Spanish flu, uh, all in, in a lifetime. Uh, and they said, you know, the, the, and yet they said lucky. Does it worry so, you about future generations? I mean, I, you refer to that in the book, the the fact that, you know, the everyone gets a prize and, and the sort of the idea of self-esteem being so important to us. And I think when you talk about self-esteem, what do you say that um, it's self-control, not self-esteem is, is probably more important? Yes. I mean, I think we've been doing a huge disservice to the rising generation of young Australians by being by trying to make the path so smooth for them, as uh, you say, prizes for everyone, gold stars for breathing, uh, a, you know, a prize for turning up, um, always be praised, never be criticised, can't fail an exam. This is to say we are removing, or we're at risk of removing, all the things that are so crucial to a person's learning and development. You know, I think I said somewhere in the book, winners might be grinners, but losers are learners, and we all have to experience loss. Um, I mean, I don't want this to sound as though I'm some sort of killjoy, um, but I do think that... You do I make do it sound that, like we've got, we've, the, the easy road is not the best road. Well, it, well, I'm sure that's what, that's what history tells us, and I think we, ha we have to acknowledge that about, about the human condition. Um, that doesn't mean we can't have a lot of fun. That doesn't mean we don't enjoy the bluebird of happiness landing on our shoulder, and it's great fun while it lasts. Um, but if you think about life satisfaction, if you think about a meaningful life, you know, a life that gives you a rich sense of meaning and purpose, it actually hasn't got anything to do with whether you're feeling happy moment to moment. Do you it has think... to do with whether you're deriving satisfaction from what you're doing. How do you feel about your life personally? 
you've had a very full life from looking in from the outside. You've had a very full life. You've had a very productive life. Yeah. Is, has it been a life with purpose? Because you talk about that in, in the book, the importance of, of having some purpose in your life. Yeah, yeah I think it has, uh, not, not in the beginning, um, but I think probably from about my 40s on, I had a pretty clear idea of what I was trying to do, which was you know, trying to get a handle on the nature of society and how people respond to social change and all that sort of stuff and feed that back. You know, I, I began to realise that uh, our society was very hungry for more insight into why so many people were feeling as troubled as they were, why there was emerging such a high level of anxiety in our society, which has now become an epidemic. Uh, so I, I saw my purpose, and I still do, as trying to explain all this, to try, try and sort out for people why uh, they feel the way they do uh, so that they might decide what they can do about it. Hugh, why do you think it is an, an epidemic, as, as you've said, of anxiety and, and depression? Why, why does it seem to be getting worse rather than better? We seem to know so much more um, than we did 100 years ago. We seem to know more about yes. the mind, but, but we still seem to have this problem. It's, it's growing. What, what's the reason mm. for it? Yeah, look, I think there are two reasons. One of them um, sounds as if I'm sledging the title of your podcast. Not <laughs> it's okay. One, one of them is well. No, one of them is that we've elevated the pursuit of happiness to such an absurd position that we've created an expectation in a whole generation of young Australians that they're entitled to be happy. And as we know from human history, that happiness comes and goes. It's terrific while it lasts, and then it goes and we have other periods where it's just tedious or frustrating or disappointing or something else and then happiness comes back and so it's all a mixture, the very thing I've been saying about the range of emotions. But if we teach people, if we, if we operate as though we are entitled to happiness, then we are uh, selling people, we're more or less building in the guarantee of disappointment because no one's going to be happy all the time. It seems to me no accident that the huge rise in recreational drug taking coincides with the, the rise of this idea that we've got to promote happiness. As though people will say, a lot of young people will say when they're having a rough patch, I know the way to, and I'm entitled to happiness and I know the shortcut. It's via ecstasy or pot or whatever it might be. Um, so that's one problem. The much greater problem, I think, is that We've been through an extraordinary period in our social history, in our social development, a social evolution, where we've become more fragmented as a society. We've become less socially cohesive uh, and more people than ever in our history have been experiencing, even before the pandemic, have been experiencing social isolation. And if you just take a step back and think about what kind of species we are, you can see why that's serious for us. Like many other species on this planet uh, where, where we exist, we are social creatures. We we we're herd animals, like lots of other like lots of other species. We're hopeless in isolation. 
we need each other. Uh, we need social connections. We need families, neighbourhoods, friendship circles, groups, work colleagues, communities of all kinds to nurture us and sustain us, uh, to give us a sense of emotional security. That's what herd animals need, to feel as if they're part of the herd. And that all-important sense of belonging, of being accepted, of being taken seriously. Now, in a, in a period in our history where there's more social fragmentation, more people feeling cut off from the herd, as a result of things like our shrinking households, every fourth household in Australia now contains just one person. And that's heading towards a situation in the next 10 or 12 years, if these trends continue, it'll be every third household contains just one person. And not, I'm not saying all those people are lonely or socially isolated, but the risk of feeling socially isolated and lonely when you live alone is obviously greater. Our huge rate of relationship breakdown between 35 and 40% of contemporary marriages ending in divorce, uh, and the rate of breakdown is higher among non-married couples than among married couples. Uh, our huge mobility, we're moving house once every six years on average, just like the Americans, uh, that has a socially dislocating uh, impact. Uh, great busyness, we're all rushing around, uh, assuming that we have to be running hard or we're dead. Uh, we, it even changed the way we greet each other. We say, how are you going, busy? <laughs> so, you know, the, switch, the switch is either on or off. Uh, well, busyness is a great barrier to social cohesion. We're too busy to go and have a drink with the neighbours, too busy to stop and have a chat to the old guy on the corner who's feeling a bit lonely and would give anything for someone to just hang on for 10 minutes while he gives them some war stories or whatever it might be. Uh, and, of course, there's also our increasing reliance on uh, information technology and social media in particular that's created this phenomenon that we're now uh, documenting among younger people, especially among heavy users of social media, connected but lonely. In other words, a torrent of data exchange and yet a lack of person-to-person -person connection which creates feelings of loneliness. Now, that was a long list, but... They're putting And there are other things we could add to the list, but put all that together and what you're talking about is a society in which more people than ever before in our history are at risk of feeling socially isolated and then that can morph into loneliness. The Australian Psychological Society published uh, a study just two years ago co-authored with Swinburne University. Uh, Michelle Lim was the brains behind this. Um, which showed that 25%, this is an astonishing figure, Kate, 25% of Australians say they feel lonely for more than half of every week. Mm. And that's the rate of pretty frightening. Uh, feeling lonely, it is frightening, and that's, a, that's even higher among young people. Now, it seems to me that we don't have to say in response to this, come on, get happy. It seems to me what we have to say in response to this is we have a major social challenge in Australia and around Western societies, not just Australia, this is common to Western countries. And the major challenge is to restore a sense of social cohesion, 
and to promote the idea that we 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 have a responsibility to our neighbours to rediscover the neighbourhood uh, and to do everything we can to promote social harmony. Now that will produce. Come back to the podcast title. That will produce happiness for a lot of people some of the time. It will certainly reduce a lot of anxiety. Hugh, the thing I notice is we're talking about, you know, these sort of social um, systems or this this creation of some of the problems you just spoke about that have had, you know, happened over the last, you know, 10, 15, 20, 30 years, however long. But, but the things that you talk about as an antidote to that are ancient. Wisdoms. They're not. They're not new in in a way, are they? People have been writing about these for for, for centuries. They're part of a lot of um, religions. They're they're certainly quite spiritual. It, it's almost like we're we're knocking our heads against the wall, ignoring the really obvious ways, and let's forget about happiness, perhaps, but how to live a good life. Um, these things have been clear and have, people have talked about for generations. I, I agree absolutely, Kate. I think that's a completely accurate summary of the situation. Um, I mean, the thing that we've overlooked, uh, or I don't know if we've overlooked it, but we've been crowded out by the rise of in, a culture of individualism. The thing we overlook is that because we belong to a social species, Cooperation is what we're built to do, and the one quality we need to be a a fully cooperative species, which is the best way of describing us, that's what's most natural for us, the one quality we need is compassion. Yeah. The ability, uh, the capacity to be kind, uh, to be tolerant, to be respectful, uh, inclusive towards other people, especially people we don't like much especially people we don't agree with. That, that's, you know, it's not a secret. It's not some magic thing. That's, as you say, that's been the teaching of ancient philosophers and religions down through the ages, and it's what contemporary psychology tells us. So why so hard, Hugh? Why, if, if, we, know that, if we know that service to others and, and kindness and compassion to ourselves and to others are, are really key to living a good life. Why is it so hard for people? You would think sort of, um, you know, conversely that selfishly people would want to do this sort of thing because it would make them happier in the long run. Absolutely right. Certainly bring them deeper life satisfaction. I mean, the, the graph that shows that life satisfaction around the, around the Western world, life satisfaction tends to increase very significantly in the second half of life. People are typically much more satisfied with their lives in their 50s, 60s and 70s than they were in their 20s, 30s and 40s. And that's to do with this very point. Uh, It often takes that long for us to get the idea that actually uh, we we belong in these communities. We've got to nurture these communities. We've got to be more compassionate. We've got to be more patient. uh, We've got to be more tolerant of each other. That, That comes to us with a bit of experience. Um, but, but yes, it, it is extraordinary that we have lost sight of that in the, in the rush of, I think it's probably the rush of individualism, but also materialism, that we've, that we've focused so much on the economy, on our role as consumers rather than citizens or neighbours, uh, that we've thought it's all about acquiring stuff and it's all about me being happy, but it's all about me. 
Well, the truth is, it's not all about me. We only become fully ourselves in our relationships with each other. Uh, I quoted Gandhi uh, in the book, and you almost quoted him a moment ago when he said, the best way to find yourself is to lose yourself in the service of others. Now, that's the pathway to, to enormous satisfaction, not necessarily to perpetual happiness. I mean, Roy Baumeister, one of the great pioneers of the, of the um, positive psychology movement, says, you know, the things that bring us happiness are usually to, to do with taking. The things that bring great satisfaction and give a sense of meaningfulness to our lives are usually to do with giving. And he quotes another psychologist have quoted, for example, parenthood. Many, most parents, most parents, not all, would say that the greatest source of meaning in their lives has been their role as a parent, but they wouldn't necessarily say it's been the greatest source of happiness. It's often driven them nuts. Terrible times, terrible times as a parent. So the hardest times that you know I can remember. I, I, I think when I became a parent, I just thought no one ever told me how awful and hard this could be. But and, and but uh, amazingly, also this incredibly joyful and um, you know illuminating experience where you learn so much about yourself. You learn to put yourself second, standing in the rain trying to fit a car seat in the car as the and you're thinking, I, I would, who would, who would, why would I ever have stood in the rain for someone else ever before while you're trying to fit a car, a child into a car seat? Yeah, sorry. No, that, that the comment you just made uh, goes right back to this uh, this point that that you that you raised about you know why why is it so hard to be compassionate? Well, it's not hard for parents to be compassionate. They've committed themselves to the raising of children. Once we understand, for example, that we're neighbours, that the health of the neighbourhood is vital to the health of everyone who lives in the neighbourhood, then we, be, we become more compassionate towards our neighbours. But it isn't easy. Mm. I mean, you know, many people wiser than I am have said love's work is the hardest work of all. You, you know, in a marriage, a marriage doesn't just drift along and it's all terrific. You do have to work mm. at any intimate relationship or a working relationship or the business of being a parent. The rewards are enormous. Um, but this is one reason why in all this talk of being members of communities and being compassionate and so on, we also have to remember that we all need time alone. We all need downtime when otherwise we'll suffer from compassion fatigue we need we need times for us you know whether it's yoga or meditation or reading a book or going for a walk or something every day we need a bit of time to replenish our resources because it isn't easy uh, to be a loving person a compassionate person it is demand Hugh what the central um, premise of of your of your book is is about people not living their authentic lives, not being their authentic self and how important that is. And um, as we've spoken about a, a couple of the sort of things, you talk about the hiding places, um, be it addiction or ambition or the search for happiness, victimhood, many of those. But can you talk a little bit about why you decided to write about that authentic self and, and why it's so important to... I guess, again, if we don't say happiness, to living a good life. Why do people need to find that authentic self? Yeah. Um, as a social researcher all my life, I've been 
uh, studying and writing about society, relationships, and the kind of question of identity. Uh, now, identity is important, and of course, we're living through a, a period in our in our history where identity is. Everyone's on about their identity, uh, either as individuals or as groups, or you know, identity politics, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and and it occurred to me um, late in my career that by focusing on all of that external social interaction stuff, I've only been telling half the story. That identity is very important. I can say. Uh, you want to know who I am? I'm a man. I'm an Australian. I, I'm a writer. I'm a psychologist. I'm a father. I'm a husband. I'm a chorister. I'm a neighbour. You know, you can go, I've got this sense of humour and I dress like this and I talk like this. And that's my identity. That's the unique me. That's how I'm different from everyone else. But, of course, within us, there is a deeper sense of self that has really nothing to do with that exterior shell. And when we go deep inside ourselves, what we discover is not our uniqueness. This is a bit of a paradox. The deeper we look into who we really are, the more we discover that it's not so much about Kate, the woman, or the journalist, or the broadcaster, or the mother, or the neighbour, or whatever it might be. It's about Kate, the human. It's about Hugh the human. In other words, we go deeply inside and discover not how we're different from each other, how we're independent, but we discover our common humanity, how we're absolutely interdependent, uh, how we're interconnected. Hugh, you talked, you almost seem apologetic um, in, in the book when you're talking about things like the soul it's it's almost like you don't want are you embarrassed by the idea of that being a spiritual kind of idea it's almost like you want to sort of say look there's a scientific there's a science around this but you know people talk about these the difference between ego and consciousness if if you want to put it their their way you're talking about identity and you say in a pragmatic way the soul but are you does it does it embarrass you that idea that there is a spirituality in this in this concept no no, it doesn't, it doesn't embarrass me at all, but I also didn't want the book uh, to be, I mean, the book is challenging enough by talking about all the ways we hide from the self, but I, I certainly didn't want the book uh, not to have resonance for people who aren't tuned into the idea of a, a spiritual dimension to their lives or a spiritual interpretation of the word soul. So I, I, I use the word soul as though it's almost interchangeable with the word self in, in this sense of the inner self. But no, I'm, I'm not embarrassed about it at all, Kate. I, I just, uh, I suppose it's my training as a researcher. I, I tread very carefully uh, to try and avoid presenting ideas in such a way that they're only, it's only going to make sense to people with a particular perspective. I, I'd hope that this is something that anyone could read and get without without approach, approaching it from a spiritual point of view. It can be one of those things, can't it, that if you sort of talk too much about spirituality that people can be dismissive because they don't necessarily believe in that. But, you know, you talk about the fact that science has, has certainly not 
got all the explanations and, and I think you refer to that really late in the book when you talk about the biological explanation for depression, for example, having been essentially a, a complete failure. Great great marketing success. But in terms of yes. um, in terms of research and the veracity of that research not proven in any in any way at all. Mm. Um, yeah, I just I thought that was that was really interesting. The fact that you know when you were when you were talking about the soul and you were talking about um, you know the the authentic self again, it felt like you were talking about the wisdom of of the ages. Is this something you've known for a long time, or is it something that's come to you as well later in life? Yeah, it definitely come to me later in life. Um, I don't think that I really got. The idea of interconnectedness, this idea, the sort of metaphor that I used in the book of us all being part of a vibrating web of interconnectedness, I don't think I really got what that meant. Um, Certainly until the last 20 or so years, I mean, I've recently turned 80, uh, so I've been around for a long time, but it's 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 a later in life experience for me to have fully understood what it means to say we, we're, we're interconnected. I, I think I've, for too long, maybe it's the training, maybe it's the work, but I think I, I hung on for too long uh, to the idea of the self as purely the external identity. You know, I've, I've written in the past that if you, if you, want, to, if you want to know yourself, don't, don't look in the mirror, don't go navel-gazing, look into the faces of the people who love you. That's where you find out who you are. Well, that is where you find out who you are in an important way, but I'd, I'd meant it, I think, in a more superficial way than I mean it when I say it today. Today I'm saying when you've gone deeply inside yourself, you realise that you can only make sense of yourself as a social being. Therefore, the people around you, not just the people that you love, but the people you live amongst, the people you work with who you might not like particularly, they are part of who you are. And that's it doesn't sound very hard when you say it, but I didn't I I wasn't capable of saying that when I was forty or fifty. Hugh, your book is um uh is, is like, as you said, it's hard work in a sense because as you run through the 20 hiding places, I, I think, oh, this is exhausting. So many <laughs> so many hiding places that I hide in myself and how do I get out of them? I, I, it's a big question and uh, just to finish us off, what is the easiest way? You talk about all the places that people can hide, all of these spaces that we inhabit, but what's the easiest way for people to move away from their hiding places? What are the best methods of self-reflection? The first thing is to acknowledge that we have been hiding. For example, projection, which is one of my favourites on the list because we all do it, where we, instead of facing flaws or frailties or shortcomings in ourselves, we project them onto other, criticise other people for the very things that are wrong with us. So the first step is to acknowledge that we've been hiding, that, that we've been refusing to face something about ourselves by keeping busy or by being addicted to our smartphone or by projection or, by, or hiding in worship of science or you know, whatever it might be. Um, once we've acknowledged that and once we've recognised that the deep truth about ourselves is that we are social beings, that we need each other, that we're interconnected, and that our self 
is all to do with our compassionate, cooperative nature, then I think it's easy. We can say, look, uh, it's not that I'm going to. It's not that I'm going to break the shell. It's not that I'm going to abandon my personal identity. I still need that, but now I can explain why I've been feeling vaguely uneasy. Why I've felt there must be more to life than this, or I'm not presenting a true reflection of who I am, or there's some sense of tension between my inner and outer self, and, and I need to bring them together. Once we, once we get that that's going on, I think the next step is really very easy, which is to say, okay, the key to this whole thing is to embrace my capacity for compassion and to start exercising it. That is the pathway, not necessarily to happiness, but it is the pathway to psychological freedom. The greatest of all human freedoms is the freedom to love, the freedom to approach every situation uh, whoever it is, whatever encounter we're making, to say this is going to be a tough call. Uh, we're going to have a debate about this. We're going to we're, get, we're going to terminate our relationship, or we're going to retrench this person, or we're going to have to deal with a furious disagreement about politics. But we can do it kindly. We can do it respectfully. We can do it compassionately. It's a personal transformation, and once you and and it requires practice. Once you start, it becomes a habit. It's a discipline which we can adopt, and it is, it is the key to personal freedom like nothing else is. Love is the key to personal freedom. That's what it comes down to, isn't it, Hugh? After all of these hours of, of studying and, and researching people, um, the miraculous answer seems to be just more love. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Love in all its manifestations, but especially this very particular kind of love which doesn't actually involve affection. It doesn't involve emotion. Compassion is something we do for other people because we understand that we're we're humans together. And it's something, I mean, you can't love people in the romantic sense without feeling a great attraction and emotional engagement. But you can love people in the compassionate sense with no emotional attachment at all. Hugh, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I could talk to you all day. I, I loved your book. I thought it was fascinating. I'm probably going to go back and read over those uh, hiding places again to make sure I'm routing myself out of them. But um, congratulations and um, lovely to talk today. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us today and, in fact, for joining us throughout the series. Today's our last episode for now, but we will be back to talk more about happy and what keeps people joyous. Until then, keep working hard, stay curious and stay centred.